Let's get your Bibles out to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to do a um, kind of a flyby on verses 10 through 12 today. Uh, we're going to keep coming back to those verses throughout this series. So I'm going to basically introduce and go a little bit to a little bit of a depth, but not too much. So I'm going to encourage you to really uh, hang in there and let's uh, really get off on the right foot in this sermon series. I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you the truth. I do not think that I could possibly overemphasize the importance that we learn what we're going to be studying. Not just hear it, not just say, you know what, good message, bad message. Not just sit there and criticize whether you think it was right or wrong, what he could have said, what he didn't say. Really to incorporate the biblical teaching on spiritual warfare. This is absolutely essential, and I feel like a commander with troops saying, tomorrow, even tonight, we start the battle. And I don't want to lose anybody, so let's get ready for it. Let's be prepared for it. Let's understand what this war is. I think we need to do that because I'm going to share with you an old psychiatric test that was done years ago to try to determine if a patient was sane enough to be discharged. I recently read of this unusual test. It was devised at a mental hospital, <coughs> and it helped determine really the level of sanity or insanity. Here's what they did. They would bring any patient that was, they thought may be ready to be considered for discharge I <laughs> need water here, <coughs> excuse me, into a room where there was a water tap flowing and water was pouring all over the floor. Now I want you to get this, ready? There's a water tap, there's a spigot of water. It is pouring all over the floor. And the patient was given a mop and told to mop the water up. Now if the patient had enough sense to turn off the tap, before mopping up the water, that patient was ready to be discharged. <coughs> Excuse me. But if, as in the case of many, he took the mop, started mopping up the floor with the tap still flowing, they knew more treatment was needed. This is a true story. See, I think this actually explains or even illustrates a lot of our lives, a lot of the way that many of us are living, there is a water tap pouring, and we're busy doing the wrong thing. We're not getting to the root. We're busy about physical incidents. We're busy focusing on things that are happening on the outward, in the physical realm of our lives. Yet there's a water tap flowing in a spiritual dimension, and many of us, can I even actually say possibly most of us, are absolutely unaware of it. Do you know that a, a Barna research study not too long ago revealed that 40% of those claiming to be Christians strongly believe that Satan does not exist except as a symbol of evil. Now, I'm going to say that again just in case you missed it. Forty percent of evangelical Christians believe that a personal being by the name of Satan does not exist except for a symbol of evil. 
That's shocking. Let me give you a, even a little bit more nuance of that. 20 additional percent, 20% in addition, weren't sure if Satan exists. They're confused. So that's actually 60% of evangelical churches. This is a modern study. Either do not believe or are not sure that Satan is a personal being that exists to bring harm to God's people. So how about it, Cornerstone? I want you to be really honest. You ready? This is where we get off on the right foot on this journey in this series. We're all packing into the car as a family. We're going to be going in one direction, but sometimes my kids, they don't want to go. They're fighting us all the way. So let me just get all on the same even, even level playing field. Do you believe that Satan exists as a personal being to bring harm to you personally? Do you believe that he has fallen beings that are working to deceive and oppose you? See, the Bible declares, friends, you're in a spiritual war. I'm in a spiritual war. And there is a grand purpose for this war. So we're going to begin, I don't know, perhaps at the most unlikely place, all the way back to the book of Judges. And I'm going to ask you to turn there. We're going to be in Ephesians in a moment. But I hope you have your Bible open. Can you get all the way back in the Old Testament, open it up to the book of Judges? I really want you to underline this. I want you to highlight this. I want this to catch your eye over and over and over in future weeks, months, and years as you are studying the Bible. And I'm going to show you what it says in verses 1 and 2. Judges chapter 3, 1 and 2. And here's what God's word says. Now these are the nations that the Lord left. Now if you read that in context, he's going to name four of them. To test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. To teach war to those who had not known it before. So they've settled into the promised land. There are four nations that God had left they opposed God's people. The Bible says, why did God allow them to remain? God had a purpose for them. It was to teach all of those Israelites, none of whom had really ever experienced and tasted war. It was to teach them how to fight. So parents, I'm speaking to you. If you have children, when's the last time that you taught your children how to fight spiritual enemies? Have you ever? I'm going to tell you, most Christian families, parents have never taught their children this. I'm going to ask you, how, how, what, when's the last time that anybody woke up in the morning, and before you got out in the battlefield of war, before you got going in your day, you put your armor on. You went through the armor pieces, you cinched up the straps, you made sure they were ready before you stepped out for war. When's the last time you've done that? Now, my guess is probably almost none of us do that. I myself need to do that far, far more. My aim is this series is going to teach us how to do that. It's going to get us back into the war that we're already in. We're, just don't, we're not aware that the water, the tap water, is flowing. We're mopping the wrong 
source. Or we're mopping while the source is still going. We're going to learn how to fight. But here's the problem. There's people that are Christians all over this world that focus too much on spiritual warfare. Just like there are Christians all over the world that do not focus enough. And C.S. Lewis captured both of those in the screw tape letters. Here's his famous quote. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I know people that have come into my office that have told me about a demon in their motor, which is why their car won't start. They have a spiritual demon in every problem. I think that's a bit excessive, maybe excessively excessive. But how do you distinguish? How do you discern? That's the aim of this series. We're going to learn how to turn off the tap through the gospel's power. We're going to learn how to dress up in this armor, go to war. Here we go, right? I'm going to give you four points today. Very simple. I'm going to elaborate on one of those points, or actually on one of the theological points and two of these main points. That sounded confusing. Maybe it's not so simple after all. Let's hit number one. Ready? Get ready for war. It's so simple. It's such a statement of simplicity. Here it is. It's an admonition. It's an encouragement from me. From the Bible, through me, get ready for the war. Look at verse 10. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, I don't think Paul can get any more straightforward than this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, he's going to tell you why. But let's just camp on this for a little bit. We've got a command. Be strong in the Lord. That's a Greek imperative. This is not an option. This is not, you know what, if you get up tomorrow morning in an exceptionally good mood, well, why don't you get strong in the Lord? That's not how this goes. This is a command. To defy it is to enter into the slippery slope that will ruin you. And let me remind you that every single command that God has ever given in the Bible, he promises to give you the power to do it. That's what grace does. So God will never command us to do anything that he will not supply the power to do. So we have a command, and the command is to be strong in the Lord, be strengthened in his power. Now, a lot of times we miss what I'm about to tell you. So that's why I want to take a little bit of a... Uh, a pain to bring it out. I want you to look at that. Be strong in the strength of his might. That's three different words for power. They're all three different Greek words. And by the way, friends, when you see the Bible do that, remember the Greek language, and neither did the Hebrew, they really didn't have punctuation grammatical devices. They didn't have quotations. They didn't have bold. They didn't have highlight pens. If they wanted to emphasize something, the authors would often either repeat or pile superlatives. And here we go. We've got be strong, strength, and might. This is an incredible emphasis from Paul. And what he's saying is, do not find the strength in yourself. Do not try to fight this war in yourself. You've got to be strong in the Lord, I want you to see that preposition in. This is absolutely critical. Christian, do you truly understand you are in 
Christ. And that he is in you because of faith. Now, I'm going to actually answer that rhetoric, that rhetoric question. See, I just asked you rhetorically, do you truly understand? Let me be courageous for a moment. Now, look at me for just a second. I don't think any of us truly understand this. I think perhaps the closest we can possibly understand this is the covenant of marriage. Now, when Denise, my wife, who was raised with the last name Nance, married me March 24th, 1990, the very moment that we took our vows, God brought us together. Her last name now became her middle name. That's how she, had, she chose to do it. And my last name became her last name. She became in me, and her identity began to come into mine, and really actually subsumed by mine, represented by name. Now, obviously, if you understand earthly marriage, that works the other way around. But when it comes to divine cosmic covenant, and we get to that word or that phrase, in Christ, Jesus doesn't change to adapt to us. He subsumes us into him. So our identity begins to change. Now it instantaneously changes, but then over an entire lifetime continues to change. See, this is a concept so big that it would hardly be a mistake to take 30 messages on this. Well, actually some have. Let me explain a little bit more. To be in Christ means, well, what the Bible says, Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I, Tim Ackley, who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, do you see that? This is so radical that I can no longer say that life is about Tim Ackley like I used to be able to say wrongly but in my sin nature it is no longer about me i'm so subsumed into christ that my life is really rightfully about jesus and when i start making it about me that's when i go off the tracks john echoes we know that god abides in us well how does god abide in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. So Jesus lives in you, Christian brother and sister. How? By the Spirit of God. So Jesus, his power, his identity, you're being subsumed into him. You did instantaneously, by identity, by position, the very moment you put your faith in him. But then every day as you walk with him, you're becoming more and more like him. So that when people see you, Christian brother and sister, they ought to be getting, beginning to see a more clear picture of Jesus. You see, this being in Christ, hugely important. I mean, just take Paul for a second. 164 times in just his writings alone, he uses this phrase, in Christ, or something similar. i got to give you a little bit of a corrective, okay? This is how we're, we think too pragmatically. We don't think of the mystical union well enough. We don't think in the marriage covenant well enough. We think... The way that I'm going to tell you that we shouldn't think. It's not that the milk is in 
the fridge or the tools are in the toolbox that we are in Christ. It's not that we're located in Christ intact as a physical structure or a physiological being somehow in this big cosmic organic Jesus figure. That's not what it is at all. It's that we're now with him in relationship. We are joined with him inextricably, meaning that there's no way that the devil can begin to pull you apart so that he can separate forever you and Jesus. You are so now intertwined with Jesus that you are now one person. Now that doesn't mean you're God. That doesn't mean you're Jesus. What it means in one person is that you have a personhood that is taking on a more radical transformation so that now you are becoming more like Jesus. And he is bringing about that change. See, the moment you trusted in Christ for salvation, the Spirit of God joined you with Christ in eternal, perfect union. You're seated with him, we're about to see it, in the heavenly places, the place of victory. Now, this is pretty wild. Jesus takes personal responsibility for you. It's as if he will not let you out of his sight. That's why you're seated with him in the heavenly places. You've got the Father. You've got to his right Jesus. You're right there as well. This is an amazing thought. He's not letting you out of his sight. You will never be unprotected. He's never going to be busy over in India. And meanwhile, the Christians in America are open to attack. His blessings are your blessings. His rule is your rule. His victory is your victory. It's not because we have fought this war well. It's because Jesus fought the war well. You see, that victorious Jesus has stripped Satan of his authority through his death and his resurrection. I really want you to understand that. Satan is called the God or the ruler of this age. But through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has been conquered. That authority has been stripped from him. We can be strong in our faith. We can know for certain. We can dwell on that fact, that position of theology without wandering from it. Listen, Satan has no authority over the Christian. Meaning, you got to understand how authority is used, meaning he has no right to use the power that he possesses against you. Do you understand? This is why he had to ask God for permission before he could attack Job. He doesn't have open license. His authority has been stripped. He no longer has and he does not have the right to do what he wants with his power. He can still roar. He still has power. He is leashed, however, by Christ. And you are under the Lord's rule. Now, I want to say something that we're going to take an entire series to to keep elaborating on. Satan cannot have authority over you. But listen, I want you to hear this. You can... Be lured by him to come out from under the protection, the rule of God, and begin operating under his. This is what he is so good at. 
I mean, he is marvelously, incredibly good at getting us to wander off the path, or as Proverbs says, the way of wisdom that leads to life. Now, by that, I don't mean that he could get you off of salvation and ruin you and damned you forever. That's not what I mean. He can get you to be lured out into sin, where there is now a stronghold in your life, a repetitive pattern that digs itself deep in your soul, where once again, you're going to need to be rescued by God. Are you giving your spiritual enemies permission to rule your thoughts and your emotions? Here's how it looks. I give you, Satan, permission to tell me that I'm not really a man, even though I was born a man. I yield to the belief that I need drugs and that I will never be able to stop using them. This is how the Christian can be lured. I wander down the path of sexual temptation, believing that I've got it under control. I agree with you, devil, that I am depressed and that I have no hope. Listen, I know blood-bought Christians who are right there. They do not believe they will ever change. I agree that I will never get a handle on really trusting God. I just don't get this faith thing. I'm never going to get it. I'm going to die never getting it. See, this is all the deception. This is all the stronghold. This is all the luring that the devil does. And he implants these thoughts and he gets people to believe them. I give you permission to tell me that my marriage will never get better. I can't, I can't even tell you the number of Christians that have told me this. They fundamentally truly do not believe that their marriage will ever change. See, once you begin operating under Satan's rule, he will eventually steal your joy, kill your faith, destroy your testimony. You'll be convinced you are really a different gender. You're hopelessly an addict. You're doomed in your marriage. You're gay by birth. You're defeated in your Christian walk. See, the truth is, Jesus stripped the authority from Satan, the ruler of this age. And though, though Satan still powerfully executes his schemes, listen, he cannot rule you if you stand fast in the strength of God. And he's given you an armor to do this battle, and it's in your armory, but you've got to put it on. Point number two, and we're going to move a little bit quicker. You've got to gear up for battle. First, you got to know that there's a war going on, and then you got to gear up for battle. If you know there's a war and you don't put your armor on, well, how foolish is that? Put on the whole armor, verse 11, of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And after one of our snowstorms this winter, I was helping a family clear some trees that had fallen on his barn. And one in particular, actually two of them, but one was really covered with poison sumac. It's something that I am incredibly sensitive to. Even in the middle of winter, you can get this. And my body was covered with clothing. I knew the dangers. I'm running a chainsaw. I'm lugging wood. So I had my entire body covered except for one strip of skin just above my glove. And when I was chainsawing, my Carhartt sleeve rode up about two inches and sure enough two days later a an incredibly terrible patch poison ivy broke out on my my wrist the only place i had it 
right there. Friends, we're going to learn why Paul stresses emphatically, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. In fact, he says it twice. This is a pretty important point if he's going to tell us twice. The word whole means panoplia in the Greek, which we probably understand. And I'll give you a way that we use it in English. Quote, we saw the full planopy of America's military might with all those missiles shooting from those ships. By the way, I don't think I've ever used the word panoply in a sermon before. This is like one of my favorite parts of the sermon. It means a whole kit and caboodle. Another phrase I've never used. This is like so fun. And when Paul uses it here, this panoplia, the whole armor of God, he means, oh, listen, you got to hear this. This is so simple. I know it's elementary, but it's so simple that we miss it. He means you've got to put on every piece of the armor of God. Four of them is not enough. For even one part left off, listen, that's where the enemy will strike. You let your guard down, you give in to temptation just once, his strategy hits the mark. You walk with the Lord except in what music you listen to, what movies you watch, his strategies are going to hit home. You think you're dressing in the armor today and then in a month you forget? Well, you know what? He had strategies against you and I that he concocted a decade ago and he's learned every one of our weaknesses. He's just waiting for a time to implement it and execute it. This is how good he is. So you cannot take just some of the armor, some of the days of your life, and get dressed. It's every day, every part, the whole armor of God. You love the Lord, you say, but you don't spend any time in his, in his word. Friends, listen, Christian, you're so open to attack, you have no idea. You love God's word, but you barely pray. Listen, you have no power. No power. His strategy is to keep you from intimacy with God. And the prayerless, wordless Christian will never know the intimacy of God. You cannot know the intimacy of God. You want to share Christ with others, but you're convinced they're going to reject the message, and then they're going to reject you. Listen, Satan is exercising power in your life. But I have good news for you. Actually, this is something I would write down if I were you, or I would at least lodge it in your mind. He does not have, Satan does not have unlimited numbers of strategies. In fact, he has only a few, except he's got millennium of learning to perfect them. He's got discouragement, that's a strategy. Haven't you ever been attacked with that one? He has doubt, he has distraction, he has dread, he has fear. These are all the devil's strategies. And the armor of God, listen, it meets every single one of them on the battlefield in the armor and the power and in the might of God. But we've got to do number three. We've got to know our enemy. Point number three. Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I don't think Paul is saying here, we never have a physical, visible struggle. It's obvious that we do. 
what's going on in the unseen world spills into the physical world. But he's saying that all of our struggles are not just on the level of the physical world, but over them and under them all is another struggle. And you can't perceive it with your five senses. So you've got to be alert to it. Now, how many of you have ever seen the movie My Fair Lady? Wow. I'd almost give that to you for a homework assignment, but it's not really that good. I'd rather you get into the Bible. But you know what? There's a uh, Broadway. My Fair Lady hit the Broadway, and there's a CD art cover for it. I'm going to show you a picture of it. And it depicts a heavenly being, God, controlling a puppet, the character Henry Higgins, who in turn was controlling another character, Eliza Doolittle, who was being transformed from a working-class girl into a cultured member of high society. Now, I'm going to tell you, I think this is actually, ironically, an extremely good picture of what's happening in the unseen world. Because while there's somebody that's trying to pull our strings, someone who has been stripped, though, of authority, can still exercise power, he's, he is, in turn, being controlled by a sovereign, majestic, perfect, good God. See, there are formidable forces trying to subvert our relationship with Jesus Christ. They are not for us. They are, as Paul says, against us. That's an incredibly important word. They are always against us. Now listen, I want you to hear something because the world actually in all of these movies with the occult in it or magic or sorcery can actually paint heroes that are for you. That is never the case with the devil. He will never be for you. He will always be against you. It's a word that Paul uses five times. Look in this verse, verse 12, five times the word against. That's telling us something pretty stark. And he identifies, Paul does, he identifies them as rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. And, and you've got some theologians that see those as different ranks of the demonic horde. Other theologians see them as different areas in this world where they exercise their power. Which, which one is right? I think both of them. I think they're both true. I think they offer insight that our spiritual enemies are more organized than we understand. And they are more active all around us than we care to know. But the key insight is where really is this battle taking place? And Paul could not be more clear. And it's point number four, our final one. We need to study the battleground. Look what he says in verse 12 again, in the heavenly places. This is where this cosmic struggle is taking place. Do you remember the beginning the illustration of that mental psychiatric center? The tap is flowing and those who are insane or not yet ready for discharge are mopping up the water while the water is still pouring out of the spigot. Listen, the water spigot is in the heavenly places. And it may be the most interesting and telling part of these three verses. 
For it tells us that this war and its battles play out in our physical realm, but they're originating in what Paul calls the heavenly places. And by the way, heavenly places are simply the spiritual realms. And he's been talking about them all Ephesians. See, whatever goes on in our physical realm is rooted in the invisible spiritual realm called the heavenly places. See, our five senses can only see this realm. But discernment and wisdom and spiritual insight that God can give can discern the spiritual realm. How do you see it? You see it by faith. It's the place, the heavenly places, it's the place where the ultimate conflict between good and evil is taking place. Now listen, I'm going to just take you deep diving into this for a moment. And we're going to be doing this all series. When's the last time in your marriage you had a terribly major conflict? I mean, it lasted perhaps for a few days. Well, let me, let me give you a few more to prime the pump. When's the last time that maybe one of your kids have really rebelled and defied against you? When's the last time that gossip was swirling around work that you're going to get fired for something you didn't do? When's the last time that all your friendships at school or at college seemed to turn away from you? Listen, all of those are being played out in the physical realm, but every single one of them has roots in the spiritual realm. When's the last time you've struggled with depression? When's the last time you fell for the millionth time in that sin? When's the last time you took that drug and you hated yourself for it the next day when you came down? All of those play out in the physical. They all have their roots in the spiritual. When's the last time you found yourself compromising your standards in order to find a better place of position? Maybe on your basketball team, maybe in one of your clubs at school, maybe at work. All of that plays out in the physical realm. Every one of them plays out or has its roots in the spiritual realm at the heavenly places. And I'm going to tell you, I'm only going to give you three of them, or maybe four, but if we have time. But let me show you where Paul's been using the heavenly places in Ephesians. You're, you're already in Ephesians. Just flip back a little bit. I'm going to take you to it. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul tells us we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, Christian, please hear this. Not a few spiritual blessings, not even most. You need to underline every, and you need to believe it. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ, and it waits for you. In the heavenly places. If you want to find those spiritual blessings, then you've got to get to the heavenly places. And you don't get to the heavenly places because you've died and left this earth and you're in eternal glory. You can get to those heavenly places right now. And Satan, he's going to try to deceive you. He's going to do what he did to Eve. God's holding out on you. He's not giving you all the good things that I want to give you, all the good things that you can get if you just reach out and grab it for yourself. You want victory? Satan's going to tell you. Well, you've got to get it. 
And then when he's really, really tricky, he's going to tell you the opposite. Well, if you want victory, then you just got to quit trying. You just got to trust the Lord, and you know what? Let him do everything. Equally bad. There is no let go, let God in the scripture. There is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God's already done a work. He is in you, working. He is at work to get you to will and to want according to his good pleasure. They both go together. He's going to whisper to you, Christian, you got to listen to this. He's going to whisper to you, listen, you just got to pray more. You got to do more good things. You got to serve at the church more. You got to sin less. You got to worship more passionately. Try putting both hands in the air. Then God's going to bless you. Listen, all of that is damaging, deceptive, horrific theology. God will bless you because you're in Christ and his favor is upon you because all your spiritual blessings are in the heavenly places. And they're all by grace. You don't deserve any of them. I don't deserve any of them. I can't earn even one of them. See, Jesus Christ has done everything on our behalf. You gain access to these blessings by faith in Jesus. Now go to verse 20, Ephesians 1. It tells us that Jesus rules at the right hand of the Father. Where? In the heavenly places. Our blessings are already ours. They're waiting for us in the heavenly places. And the one who rules is there as well. Jesus Christ, our captain. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Incredibly, it tells us that we're there. Did you know that you're there in the heavenly places? You're there next to Jesus. You're ruling as well. What it means to be in Christ and with Christ is, according to John Murray, the great preacher, quote, the central truth of the entire doctrine of salvation. To be in Christ with him, listen, it's to be given his heart, his desires, his disposition, his power, his blessings. Because he's triumphed over death, we're going to triumph over death. Because he broke the authority and the rule of Satan, we've broken the authority and the rule of Satan. Because he's got power over all spiritual enemies. Christian, you got to believe it. You've got power over all your spiritual enemies. It's what it means to be in Christ. And the Christian must begin to recognize that we belong more to heaven than to earth. I want to show you one more really quickly. We're almost done. Ephesians 3, chapter 10. We're seated with him. Our blessings are there with him. We've got victory because Jesus is victorious. He's sitting down. He's ruling. We're ruling. And look at Ephesians 3, 10. Every single angel is in the heavenly places. Every holy angel, every unholy angel, every faithful angel, every fallen angel, every friendly angel, every foe that is an angel. Demons and angels, there is a battle, there is a cosmic war. The battleground is in the heavenly places. And until you learn to get there by faith, the spigot is running and you're mopping the water. And you will not have victory. So Christian, are you aware each day that you're in a spiritual war? I mean, I don't, answer, I don't ask that blithely. I don't ask that flippantly. 
I really ask that genuinely. Do you truly know that every day you are in a spiritual war and your enemy wants to destroy your faith? Wants to ruin your testimony. Wants to steal your joy. We've got to become a generation of God's people that knows war. And every day we gear up for this battle, which we're going to learn to do. Why? Because we've got a hated enemy. We've got to learn his schemes and his plans. But listen, I want to send you out of here in comfort. We are in Christ. And while the battle spills into the physical reality, it is taking place in the heavenly places. And the captain of our souls is leading the charge. We have victory because he is victorious. I'm going to tell you what Tony Evans said. We don't fight for victory. We fight because we've already got victory in Jesus. Amen? Next week, we're going to look at our first piece of armor. What is it for? How do you put it on? How do you fight with it? And we're going to look at each one after that. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to end with this. General Dwight Eisenhower once said, and I'm going to quote him, War is a terrible thing. But if you're going to get into it, you've got to get into it all the way. Amen? Amen. Hang on to this series. This is critical. Get back here next week and let's see what the Lord teaches us. Let's pray.